As you can probably tell from the title, the following episode contains themes of a sexual nature. The Libertarian Christian Institute advocates and endorses a Christian sexual ethic, namely that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be enjoyed only within the bounds of heterosexual marriage. Our guest does not share the same view. However, this is an opportunity to discuss topics relevant to Christian libertarianism that are also topics weighing heavy on the minds of many Christians to include sex trafficking, sexual abuse, and how our society and government treats women overall. As a consequence, this discussion may not be suitable for everyone. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Carrie Baldwin, and I'm guest hosting today. We are going to be talking about decriminalizing sex work, which is a very controversial issue, especially among Christians. I have with me today, Melissa Brudeau. She's going to introduce herself, but she is with the organization Decriminalizing Sex Work. Melissa, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, my name is Melissa Bruto. I'm a longtime activist and attorney for sex workers and for survivors of human trafficking. I have been doing this work for over 20 years at this point, 17 as an attorney, but I was an activist and an advocate for sex workers before going into law school. And I've done direct representation, direct criminal appellate defense for survivors of human trafficking, focusing on record relief and vacature or expungement of records. And I've shifted over the last few years into the policy realm. And so I co-founded the organization Decriminalize Sex Work, and I'm the legal director, and I work on legislative policy initiatives state by state, primarily in the Northeast. Excellent background. I want to start out just talking a little bit about why a Christian organization would be talking about <laughs> decriminalizing sex work. And I imagine that we have people listening to this who are on all sides of this issue. Obviously, we have a Christian audience, but I did put out a tweet a few weeks back, and I'm expecting some non-Christians as well, even potentially some sex workers. And so I want to start out actually by talking about some of our distinctions and maybe even our disagreements before we get into the meat and potatoes of our discussion. So LCI and Christian Libertarians would not endorse sex work as a morally upright thing to do. Right, we would call the the voluntary participation in sex work a sinful act, and we would discourage it. I think that's probably sums that up pretty well. The question at issue for us has to do with the sex trafficking part of that, and how do we actually provide justice and relief when it comes to that? And also the question of how are sex workers who are voluntarily participating it? How are they being treated in the criminal justice system? Because we would disagree with any, any unjust treatment of them, even if we don't agree with how they're being treated. And probably another disagreement that's more of a tangential issue, but I did notice it on your website, would be the abortion issue. So mm -hmm. we're pro-life. 
So I, I just want to set that up, mm-hmm. set the stage for that. We do have some disagreements, but I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation. One thing that I did notice in my research is that there's a lot of organizations that are Christian-based who have seen this connection between sex trafficking and prostitution. Mm -hmm. And they are probably more advocates of the, what you call the the Nordic model, which we'll get into. But I think that sort of sets the stage. Is there anything you want to add to that? I think it's super helpful to know the framework, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe the moral ideological framework that you are coming from and, and perhaps a good amount of your listeners are coming from because, of course, for me personally and professionally, I come from a very different set of values and ideals. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so you know grateful to have conversations with people where we might have different sort of visions or backgrounds around how we see the world. Right. So, you know, it's, it's helpful for me as well. Yeah. I want to jump in first with foundations. I'm going to break this interview up into four major sections. And I want to start with foundations. So Mm -hmm. basically definitions. Mm -hmm. So would you mind defining for our audience sex work and prostitution and trafficking? Sure. So sex work is a broad umbrella term. It was coined by Carol Lee, who is one of my mentors and a phenomenal woman out in the Bay Area to sort of make clear that sexual erotic labor can be work, right? Or can be seen as work and treated as work. And I say it's an umbrella term. It includes all forms of erotic labor. It includes prostitution, which of course is what people primarily think of when they think of sex work, but it's that's just one small piece. It also includes dancing, fetish work, porn, phone sex, although that might be a little dated. (laughs) Um, Any kind of erotic labor, right? Including sugaring, escorting, etc. And the vast majority of sex work is actually legal. It's really when we start talking about prostitution Mm -hmm. that we start to talk about things that are illegal. So I'll just, you know, I know we'll talk about sort of legality and uh, legal frameworks later. Yeah. And then prostitution is the direct exchange of sexual conduct for a fee. The definition varies state by state. Every single state in the country, except for Nevada, has a penal code, a statewide penal code that criminalizes prostitution. So they're all framed a little bit differently. But in general, it is sexual conduct, which is usually defined as the touching of another's genitals mm-hmm. by case law. Usually isn't defined in the statute itself right? in exchange for a fee, right? Which is, again, why something like dancing or certain kinds of fetish work or most kinds of fetish work are fully legal. Mm-hmm. And then human trafficking necessitates force, fraud, or coercion mm-hmm. being involved, right? So there is federal definition of human trafficking, and then there's also state by state. Almost every single state in the country has its own human trafficking law. But sort of the overarching theme is if there is a minor who is induced into prostitution, so really anyone under the age of 18, if they're engaging in prostitution, they are a victim of trafficking. And then if you are... 18 and above, there has to be force, fraud, or coercion. So we're thinking of situations where, you know, someone truly cannot escape 
the situation that they are in mm-hmm. without threat of, you know, violence or danger or blackmail or having their family harmed, etc. Right. So why is it important for our audience to understand the distinctions between these terms? So unfortunately, there is, you know, an incredible amount of conflation that happens between human trafficking and sex work. And the reason that's a problem is it, well, there's many problems, but from a policy person's perspective and a a lawyer's perspective is it it creates really bad law, Mm -hmm. right? So if we're like, well, we want to help these people over here, but we're going to do something that then either catches way too wide a net and so we're trapping, you know, a bunch of folks that don't fit a definition into our law, into our grasp. Well, that's not good. Mm-hmm. And the inverse is, is not good as well, right? If we're sort of like not supporting the people that we actually want to support. Right. And so, you know, I'll give an example. I live in New York City. We have the Vice Squad in the NYPD. And they say, oh, we're going to go and rescue people who are being trafficked. What do they do? They bust into massage parlors, primarily in Queens, primarily of Asian undocumented women. They arrest them. They are often deported or their immigration status is put at risk. And oopsies, they don't find any human trafficking, Mm. right? And so all in the name of human trafficking, they're going in, often raping, assaulting massage workers, arresting them abusing them, terrifying them, and getting them into legal trouble. And so, again, that's all in the name of rescue. Right. And it's so, who are we rescuing here? Nobody. And so we see that again and again and again when we conflate sex work with human trafficking. Yeah, so those are some of the problems that currently exist, you would say, mm-hmm. under prohibition in the United States. And that's certainly something that I've seen is the police They're given broad powers to just go in and do whatever, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the name of just enforcing the law or even in the name of of rescue. And we can get into a little bit more of that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found in my research was a confusion between decriminalization and legalization. Mm -hmm. Can you define those two really quick? And what, what are the distinctions between those two? Sure. So decriminalization, which is what we advocate for, And what a lot of sex workers and sex worker advocates advocate for, right? And there's no one monolithic Mm -hmm. org that represents all sex workers or all, you know, but the movement as a whole has advocated for full decriminalization, which would remove criminal penalties from both parties or all parties, really, who are not exploitative, right? And that's a really important point. Mm. So remove penalties from the sex worker, from their client, And the reason I mentioned third party is that very often what we see is you might be sharing a space with another worker and say, well, I'll work here Monday to Wednesday. You see clients here Thursday to Saturday. But if one person gets arrested, the other person could also be criminalized, right? Nobody's Mm. exploiting the other. Mm -hmm. And nobody's even bet, you know, maybe they share the rent. But because you're sort of, you know, adjacent to someone who's engaging in prostitution, you can also be criminalized, right? So that's what we mean when we say, you know, third parties. We're certainly not talking about decriminalizing anyone that engages in exploitative or abusive behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And then legalization is different. You know, the example we have in the United States, the only example is in Nevada, right? There are legal 
regulated brothels in Nevada in small rural counties. And, you know, I don't know if everybody is aware of that or if that's something that people, you know, don't know about, but it's sort of fascinating to have that sort of experiment, you know, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better way of saying it, within the United States. And there are some positives, and I'm by no means am I an expert in the, the brothel system in Nevada. You know, I'm based in New York, but I do have colleagues that are and colleagues in Las Vegas that are. But what's so fascinating is I think that system works for some of the people that can be part of the system, mm-hmm. right? The sex workers that can jump through the hoops to work in a legal regulated brothel and to be successful there. And for the clients that can jump through those hoops to travel there or have the money or what have you to do it. The problem is, and Nevada is a perfect example, all the rest of the sex workers are left outside of it, mm-hmm. right? So in Las Vegas, in Reno, there's no legal sex work. But of course, we all know, you know, people go to Vegas, people go right. to Reno, yeah. but you know, what's happening there? So it really creates this two-tiered system where small percentage of people are operating in a legal regulated brothel system and everyone else is operating outside of it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that when I think of the fact that prostitution is quote-unquote legal in Nevada, the first thing Mm -hmm. I think of is Vegas. Right. And it's not legal in Vegas. Not. And I don't know if you were there for Freedom Fest. I know that your organization... Okay, yeah. yeah. Your organization was... And LCI was also in Vegas, and it was not difficult to step outside and see where the prostitutes were being advertised for, right? Right. And yet, it's not legal (laughs) in Vegas uh, or Reno, as you mentioned. So I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. One of the proposals that's mentioned on your website as a way of dealing with the trafficking issue is this thing called the Earn It Act. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Sure. So in order to talk about Earn It, I'm going to briefly first mention FOSTA-SESTA, right? Which is really the precursor to Earn It. So in 2018, FOSTA-SESTA was passed and enacted into law. It's the Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act. Sounds very noble. All Mm -hmm. of these initiatives always sound noble. Nobody's going to vote against it. Everyone wants to fight human trafficking. But what what did FOSTA-SESTA do? Well, once it passed, it immediately shut down dozens and dozens, if not probably hundreds and hundreds of adult websites. And those websites chose to shut down, but they were essentially like strong-armed to shut down for fear of being arrested or have civil cases against them for trafficking. And so I think what happened in the immediate aftermath and I know this pretty close up, you know, because I'm so involved in so many sex worker activist groups, was people who are the most vulnerable, the sex workers that live day to day, right? Like, well, I have to see a client today, otherwise I, I can't feed my family, right? Mm-hmm. Were thrust into impossible situations. Because if you, you've been utilizing certain websites to go online, screen clients, you know, which is essential for safety, right? You really have to be able to screen your clients to make sure that they are safe, that they are who they say they are, that they're not going to harm you and that you agree to the terms. You know, all of a sudden, those websites where you were maybe meeting with and engaging clients was were cut off. Mm. And again, if you are, you know, someone that lives 
you know, day to day, you have to go out and find clients. And so it did force a lot of people back onto the street. It did force people, you know, I started because I'm like my Instagram is so hooked into sex worker networks. I remember immediately after the passage, I started getting DMs like, do I need a manager? You know, it like sort of allowed sort of predatory people to mm. come out of the woodwork and say, well, I can help you because you're now in a, in the lurch. And so something that seemed to want to help people and diminish exploitation actually did the opposite. Yeah. And Congress is considering the Safe Sex Work Study Act, which would look at the ramifications of FOSTA SESTA, which have been, you know, it been tremendous harm, you know, done. Mm-hmm. And so Earn It would sort of take things a step further. It would create a commission that would basically, I think, I don't know exactly what this commission would be tasked to do, but it would create a commission that would determine which websites were following their guidelines or not in terms of adult content. And, and obviously nobody wants child content anywhere. It would also take an act to chip away at end-to-end encryption, which I am by no means a tech person. Mm -hmm. But I do understand as an attorney that sometimes you do need things encrypted. You need things protected. You need confidentiality. And so this would chip away, if not remove encryption altogether. Mm. So again, all in the name of protecting people would actually make it so much harder for people to communicate, to communicate privately, to communicate safely, and to support each other. Another big impact of FOSTA-SESTA, and again, we would see this with Earnet, was people were were terrified of what they could or couldn't say online. Even forgetting, you know, I'm going to go and advertise for my services, but what if I want to go and let other people know, hey, call me if you need some support, you know, or or legal advice or harm reduction materials for sex workers. A lot of people were terrified that they could then be targeted as being sex traffickers or wow. what have you. So, you know, and that's something even pre-FOSTA-SESTA has always been really hard for sex work communities is that working together is criminalized. Right. Mm, mm-hmm. I've run bad datelines where we will post violent or, you know, predatory dates. And, you know, it's always very scary because people don't want to say that they are engaging in illicit acts. So, of course, I mean, of course, we wouldn't post anybody's name anyway, but giving any identifying details about the sex worker, it, you know, could potentially put them in legal danger or physical danger. And also, could it be construed that we're helping people engage in prostitution by even saying, look out for these bad dates? I would argue no, but I, I think there is that fear, right? If you're yeah. if you're putting forth safety information, are you is that promoting prostitution? Again, I, I think it is not, but we're seeing more and more infringement onto you know communicating about erotic labor. Right. Well, and it seems like it's creating a catch-22, right? Because mm-hmm. You have this issue of sex trafficking. And I do we know how many, or roughly, I assume it would have to be an estimate, roughly how many women and girls are being trafficked versus how many are voluntarily entering into it? We don't. And, you know, it's interesting. There was a study, and I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, a study done by some professors at John Jay in New York City about minors. Mm-hmm. And which again, by federal law and by you know every state law, you know would be considered to be trafficked. But what was so fascinating there 
was that most of the youth did not identify as being forced. It was, mm-hmm. well, I got to, you know, do what I have to do. And, and also, I think it was over half were boys. Oh, wow. Right, or young men. So that's, you know, and I, I think for youth and queer youth especially, that's a really critical conversation. Mm. That this is sort of seen as an extremely gendered profession. And there's reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that it is gender neutral or gender right. you know, equal, but there are an incredibly large percentage of non-cis female sex workers, you know, that don't get talked about, that get, right. you know, eradicated in the discourse. I know you brought up Julie Bindel. And there's tons of second wave feminists that just see this through a completely sort of patriarchal mm-hmm. lens, which erases sex workers of all genders right. in that conversation. That's interesting. And it, the point that I wanted to make was that it does mm-hmm. seem to create a catch-22, right? Mm-hmm. Where whoever's involved in it, whether coerced or not, mm-hmm. whether they realize they're coerced or not, are trying to mitigate the violence against them. And it seems like the state is wanting to take away every avenue, which just shoves them back out onto the streets, which is probably the most dangerous, I would imagine, place for them to be, especially in terms of trafficking. Correct. Yeah, street-based work is way more dangerous, right, than Mm -hmm. indoor where you can find your clients online, especially in this day and age, right, where the internet... I mean, there's a lot of pros and cons to the internet, but (laughs) certainly for sex workers, it has provided a vehicle by which to safely find and screen clients Mm -hmm. by by and large. So I think my... I know that at the beginning you stated, you know, your values. You know, for me, my values are harm reduction and human rights, right? right? Those are sort of my guiding forces. Mm -hmm. It's not any religious hold. I'm Jewish, but, you know, it's it's really for me, it is very much a, like, what is going to reduce the most harm yeah. to somebody in that moment, right? right? Or in that, that experience or what have you. It doesn't, to me, the morality is not relevant. Mm-hmm. It is about health and safety and diminishing harm. And so I think whether or not you... I don't mean you particular, sure. but anybody, you know, doesn't like prostitution, thinks it's bad, good. To me, I always say I'm agnostic, right? I want mm-hmm. people to have the best health and safety outcomes that they can have. Yeah. And what ends up happening with law enforcement is things might sound like a great idea, but in the end, they're harming the people that are the most vulnerable. Yeah. And I think... We'll talk a little bit about this when we get to the section on stigma. But I think from a Christian perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, number one is we want those women who want out Mm -hmm. to be able to get out with as much ease as possible. And it doesn't make sense to make that more difficult or introduce violence or get them siphoned up into the criminal justice system if Mm -hmm. all they want is out. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I would say that's, that's the Christian perspective on that. Let's jump into, I want. I do want to come back to stigma, but let's first jump into this legal rights, legal enforcement aspect of it. I assume you're a libertarian. Is that correct? I wouldn't identify as a libertarian, no. Okay. I'm pretty much your uh, run-of-the-mill New York City Jewish lefty. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, 
I'll just say from a libertarian perspective, since LCI is libertarian, we would say that a libertarian theory of human rights is founded on the principle of self-ownership. So the idea that you own yourself and that initiating violence, coercion, or the credible threat thereof is criminal. And that's what constitutes crime. I think one of the sticking points of self-ownership is this idea of bodily autonomy and agency. Mm -hmm. It is something that I think it's largely misunderstood by Christians. Mm. This idea that you can own yourself. Mm. There's some, I've I've got some articles that sort of go off on explaining a Christian view of self-ownership. But when it comes to bodily autonomy and agency, I think it's interesting that there's this blind spot, not just with Christians, but it looks like generally speaking, there's a blind spot as to whether a woman has a say over what she does with her body. And so that that seems to, to come up. So just from a libertarian perspective, we would say that a woman does have bodily autonomy and agency. Mm-hmm. She does get to say what she will do with her body, but she just may not initiate violence, coercion, you know, or force against another human being. And of course, we don't, we would say that initiating that violence against her is, is equally criminal. Do you have any comments on on that? Well, I mean, I think, again, you know, for me as a harm reductionist and immensely pragmatic, this is probably not a shock, but I am, you know, vehemently pro-choice, mm-hmm. you know, and also in my, you know, Judaism is also, certainly Reformed Judaism is very pro-choice. It is about the health and safety of the mother, full stop. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah. that's it. <laughs> and that is... Definitely the perspective that I that I come from, you know, and from my personal experiences, you know, I had two miscarriages, mm-hmm. and both times I had surgery. So both times I had an abortion. Mm-hmm. Right, I, it was a child that I desperately wanted, and you know, the first time at eight weeks, found out the baby had died, mm-hmm. um, and which is incredibly common, mm-hmm. right. And had a DNC, and then I got pregnant again. This was back to back. And at 17 weeks, I found out there was something very wrong with the baby, and the baby was going to die. Mm-hmm. And had a DNE. And watching what has happened with, you know, Dobbs is, and I'm a New Yorker, I, and I'm a privileged New Yorker. My 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 personal access will never change as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned. I have resources, I, but knowing what I went through and knowing that, especially the second time when it was 17 weeks, the baby was not dead yet, but was going to die. My doctor was quite clear. (laughs) Like there is zero chance here. And it was a baby I desperately wanted. And I was, because I live in New York City, I, you know, I was able to get a doctor, even though I live in New York City, it was actually quite hard to find a doctor to do a DNE just because it's rare, Mm -hmm. you know, Although it's not that rare. I, I have actually multiple friends that had terrible, you know, issues happen in their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. All of children they desperately wanted. Yeah. It's not that rare. Yeah. And I it was the most, you know, painful, horrific thing I've ever been through in my life. But I had access to all the the, you know, reproductive support that one could have asked for, right? Mm-hmm. And watching what's happening now, I I can't my it, like my head explodes in seeing women that 
have, I think the New York Times just featured a story of somebody that found out there was something wrong with her baby at second trimester and she had to travel for days and take days off work and her family was pro-life. So it was, you know, um, to me, it goes back to medicine. We need Mm -hmm. to, and science. Mm -hmm. This isn't about what I think or you think. It's like, what is my doctor saying about what is happening in my body? Yeah. Oh, this baby's going to die. You need to like do XYZ. Okay. Like, why should a senator have any involvement in my uterus? Yeah. Zero. So, you know, again, for me, it's like not only just an ideology that I was raised, profoundly raised with, Mm -hmm. but based on what I went through, it's like, no, this is about science and health. This Mm -hmm. is not about morality or what would God do? Or is there a God? Or it's just like, literally your baby is dying. And would you like to not go into labor with a dead baby? Yeah. Well, man, I would love <laughs> to get into a conversation about this. Uh, I don't want to go off on, on too much of a tangent. Yeah. Honestly, I'm glad that, that you brought it up. Yeah. You're probably not familiar with my work on a, on a libertarian theory of abortion. My position has more to do with, I mean... I'm trying to summarize it. I absolutely uphold and advocate the bodily autonomy and agency of a woman. In fact, a lot of my criticism, even from my pro-life perspective, my a lot of my criticism has been with the what I call the conventional pro-life movement, the way that they deal with it. Mm-hmm. I think that in many ways, they also take away the voices and agency of women. And I think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we're going to be able to resolve even that issue until we Mm -hmm. actually have women having this conversation. Mm -hmm. So my argument, and I'll I'll leave it at this, and maybe you and I can have a conversation off the recording. Totally. But my, my argument isn't a moral argument. It's a legal rights argument. It is based in science. I do think that it reorients things, especially when it comes to sexual crimes against women, which I'm very much interested in resolving. I think that the state has absolutely failed women when it comes to Mm -hmm. to sex crimes against them. Yeah, I think even among libertarians, and I wrote an article recently, the the Libertarian Party recently removed the abortion plank from their their platform. And I wrote an article about that. And one of the things that I point out in that article that I wish more people understood is that pro-choice and pro-life libertarians have a ton of common ground that hmm. that the conventional debate doesn't doesn't share. I think the the most important piece of that is that pro-life libertarians are opposed to an authoritarian police state enforcement of of abortion mm-hmm. prohibition. Absolutely, yes. absolutely opposed to it. So. I'm sure that we even have common ground on that. Yeah. But maybe we can maybe we can carry on that conversation at another time. Totally. So let's get back into some of these these legal models and the way some of those work. So we talked a little bit about Nevada. Germany was brought up as an example of legislation and how it seems to go awry and when when I read about how legalization has worked in Germany, it almost strikes me as all it was was licensing sex trafficking Mm. in effect because it seemed to give no voice to women. Women were continuing to get sucked up into it. It was just the people who were benefiting from it were now free of 
any sort of legal enforcement against them. So what have you guys found are the problems with, I mean, you mentioned Nevada, but have you guys found problems with with the Germany model as well? I'm honestly not too familiar with Germany. I do know, I believe that Germany is legalization, right? Mm -hmm. Not decrim. Right. But I'm not too familiar with it. I'm more familiar with New Zealand decrim model and then the, you know, the Nordic and demand model, the outcomes there. Mm-hmm. I know obviously there is some legalization in other parts of Europe, including you know the Netherlands. But again, to me, it seems like similar to Nevada, there are the legal sort of people that can operate in legal mode and then everyone else operates outside of it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And again, I'm not too in the weeds of what's happening, you know, in the Netherlands or in Germany. Got it. Okay, so let's get into this Nordic model because this is the model that seems to be the most popular against decriminalization, Mm -hmm. excluding full prohibition. And it's also the model that I think is the most promoted, like I said at the beginning, by the Christian organizations that are mm-hmm. trying to deal with sex trafficking. Yes. So why don't you explain how the Nordic model works or is intended to work? And we'll go from there. So the Nordic model would decriminalize the seller mm-hmm. of sexual services. So the sex worker, it would keep a criminalization on the clients or the johns of sex work. And I think, you know, there's sort of two different ways to look at it, right? There's the ideology mm-hmm. behind the model. Mm-hmm. And then there's the there's the pragmatic impact, right? And I take issue with both, mm-hmm. right? So the, pre- the ideological rationale is very much second wave feminist, you know, sort of prohibitionist thinking of um, an extremely gendered, right, look at sex work, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about all porn is violence, all, you know, sex work is uh, an outcome. They wouldn't even say sex work. Prostitution is an outcome of of misogyny. Um, that these women, and, and as I said before, it's not all women, but again, this model is basically like men are the purchasers slash mm-hmm. aggressors. Women are all the victims, right? It's extremely, it like goes on this, extreme gender binary, which is quite outdated (laughs) at this point. But it basically assumes... There are so many assumptions that go into the the Nordic model, right? That, again, men is predatory, is always seeking sex, women is victims, in desperate need of rescue. And so just from a purely ideological standpoint, I take issue with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not only, right, do people engage in sex work freely, um, there are people engaging in sex work of all genders, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know where they would stand on, well, what about a male purchasing another man or, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which happens incredibly often. And when I was at the Sex Workers Project in New York City for almost a decade, well over 50% of my clients that are represented were trans women. Hmm. And so again, it's... And trans women are women, But again, this model is built on a very sort of like classic second wave patriarchal sort of like, you know, liberation feminist, uh, you know, for women to be taken seriously, we have to be like a man. We have to (laughs) desexualize ourselves. We have to, you know, like put on a suit and march into court, you know. And I I think that feminism made sense at the time, like in the 60s, right, as women had to do that Mm -hmm. to 
um, be taken seriously intellectually. But the thing is, it doesn't have to be an either or. I think we're at a place now where, you know, liberation is choosing, you know, how you want to be, what you want to do for your work, how you want to be perceived, how you perceive yourself. You don't have to put yourself into a box, right? Right. And so people like Gloria Steinem, who, I mean, you know, God bless, right? An important feminist political figure, but she has never changed her view on on Mm. thinking sex work is inherently exploitative, you know? Mm -hmm. Because again, I think during her time and, and, you know, maybe our parents' generation of, of feminists, like that was what you had to do, right? You have to desexualize yourself. You have to de mm. uh, in order to be taken seriously. And I think mm. I think our generation and the younger generation certainly, I mean, I'm 42, you know, it's certainly, you know, younger generation, it's like gender is not even a thing, you know. Right. So, you know, that's the ideological issue with it. And then from a pragmatic standpoint, it's deeply problematic. In the countries that have the Nordic model, we have Sweden, we have Northern Ireland, Canada effectively has, you know, the Nordic model, even though that wasn't what the Supreme Court of Canada intended to do. But in Northern Ireland, the Department of Justice did a review, um, I believe it was 2019, I could be wrong, um, a three-year review of the impact of the Nordic model in Northern Ireland and actually found no decrease in demand and also that sex workers felt less safe, less supported, mm. and reported an increase in violent or antisocial behavior, mm. which actually makes total sense, right? So if I am a sex worker and I'm going on- online or on the phone and I'm trying to screen a client and the onus of criminalization is on him, let's be gendered and say, I'm a female right. sex worker as a male client. And I'm like, well, I need to know your real name. I need to get three references from you. I need to know where you work, blah, blah, blah. There's no way he's going to want to give me that information. Yeah. If the onus of criminalization is now on him. Now, obviously in the United States, as it exists, the onus of criminalization is on both parties, but clients know there's a small percentage that that they'll actually be the ones arrested, right? Right. Whereas with the Nordic model, it's like, oh no, the onus is fully on you now. Mm -hmm. And so that makes for a really squeamish clientele, mm-hmm. you know, um, that is not going to w- want to be screened for for safety and give out any identifying information, understandably, right? Because they're yeah. like, well, what if you're an undercover cop? So it, you know, it, it puts sex workers in an impossible position. And it also doesn't relieve state involvement in your life. There was a sex worker in Sweden named Petite Jasmine. I actually got to meet her about 10 years ago uh, when we had an AIDS conference in DC. And I remember speaking with her about the Swedish model because this was, you know, obviously they've had the Swedish model now since 99. So this was maybe 15 years into it almost. And she said, you know, I'd rather be seen as a criminal than a victim. Hmm. You know, she's like, everyone wants me to be the perfect victim now and I'm not going to do that. And Crazily enough, I mean, it's horrible. She was murdered by her ex-husband. Wow. Because he was very abusive, obviously. He killed her. Um, they were fighting, you know, over custody of their children. And um, she wouldn't stop being a sex worker. She wouldn't relent to being the perfect victim, mm. right? She wouldn't fit into the box of being like, well, I'm, yes, help me. I'm a victim. And so he got custody of the children. And um, during a visit, he killed her. 
And so I know, you know, obviously I'm not saying if this happens, everyone's going to get killed. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but it's, you know, sort of an example of how, you know, the Swedish model, which again, looked to protect those who are vulnerable, it failed somebody like in the most horrific way because it saw her as, oh, well, then you're crazy or there's something wrong with you if you're not just throwing up your hands and saying you're a victim. Well, and that's that's the thing. I mean, and I guess just for the sake of our audience, another disagreement would be over the the transgender issue. Mm. You know, we wouldn't say that a transgender woman is a woman, but setting that aside, even so, there's there is this uh, this projected mm-hmm. victim mentality, right? Yeah. That people want to place on women, and. I think, number one, it's completely unhelpful. I do think it's infantilizing and insulting. And, you know, whether you agree with the behavior or not. (laughs) Yep. And, you know, so that in and of itself, I mean, that steals, that from the feminist perspective, that steals a woman's agency. Mm -hmm. It means her yes doesn't mean yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I noted, uh, again, in my research, there was this video that I came across from the Scandinavian human rights lawyers. Mm -hmm. And they, they mentioned in this video, they said that they did an assessment of the Nordic model and it said that the Nordic model had reduced street prostitution by half. Mm. But then it said, and I, I was sort of surprised that a group of lawyers would put this out there. Mm. They said that it's reasonable to assume that the Swedish law on prostitution has counteracted the established the establishment of organized crime and human trafficking for sexual purposes on a major scale in Sweden. And I was, I was struck by that because I was like, why is it reasonable to assume... <laughs> Right. Yeah. Sounds very sloppy. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's produced in such a way. And I think that this is perhaps one reason why, one reason why Christian organizations that are trying to help trafficked victims Mm -hmm. are so, so drawn into this model is because, you know, they're well produced and they make certain claims such as, oh, mm-hmm. this seems to have actually counteracted that. Mm-mm. And, you know, the one of our biggest grievances with on our part from LCI is that Christians don't understand economics. They don't understand the mm. laws of supply and demand and, and what's actually going mm. on with that, which we'll, I, I guess we'll, mm. we'll get into in a little bit. But yeah, the, the two things that struck me about the Nordic model was this blanket victimization of women, which I think is Mm -hmm. not fair at all. Yep. It does steal our agency. And then it seems like there isn't a a lot of really good data that actually supports it. It's just a lot of talking. Now you guys have on your website, right? Mm -hmm. If I recall, some, some studies demonstrating that it has the, the unintended effect. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. We definitely have some fact sheets, I think a video as well, about the Nordic model. And I'm sure there are links to... There was a meta-analysis done in 2018 by professors at Hopkins, one of whom was my mentor when I was there. I got my MPH at Hopkins and I focused on health outcomes around sex work. And so even though I'm an attorney, I have a little bit of a public health lens 
And so Susan Sherman, who's at Hopkins, and, and some other researchers teamed up with researchers at the London School of Health and Hygiene and, and some of the other preeminent public health institutions and did a meta-analysis looking at 130 studies taken over a 30-year period. I don't remember the number of countries, but many, many countries, and basically did this like meta-analysis mm-hmm. and found that where there was any prohibition, whether it was both parties or just one party, there were worse health outcomes. So less mm. condom use, increased violence, less ability to have sort of networks around safety and health. And so that study meta-analysis combs through you know hundreds of studies is very informative because what I've seen, and it sounds like you've seen this also, and we're my side is guilty of doing this, you know, mm-hmm. that we can pick and choose data or studies, of course, right? I mean, yeah. we on any issue, right? Yeah, it's not just related to sex work. And so what I really like about the Hopkins one is right that it's like this, you know, really macro like meta-analysis. But again, yes, anyone can pick and choose data and studies that support. You know, mm-hmm. but for me, the key is this is a little bit of an aside, but the key is when looking at data around this is like, look at the sample size, look at the researchers. Was this peer reviewed? Was this right? Like mm-hmm. published in the legitimate article? You know, someone like Melissa Farley, who I don't know if you've come across her research, but she mm-hmm. sort of has disappeared, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, had a lot of research out there in the 80s and 90s. And she ended up, her work was discredited by the Canadian Supreme Court. They're like, we're not going to take into account her studies because they are so blatantly biased. Mm -hmm. Like she would have a sample size of like 10. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but 10 and go into a domestic violence shelter in San Francisco and be like 100% were trafficked and abused. It's like, well, you went to a shelter for abused women. Of course, 100% of them were abused, you know. Right. So you really have to like, you know, read between the lines when looking at data. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. I want to pose some of the harder questions mm-hmm. that <laughs> you might get from Christians about decriminalization. Yeah. First of all, well, and we've we've talked a little bit about why sex workers want the decriminalization. Mm-hmm. You know, it improves safety for them, mm-hmm. allows those who want to get out to get out. So let me ask this. Mm-hmm. One question that that I had come up from somebody on Facebook was, will decriminalization just make it easier to traffic girls and women? So I would argue the opposite is true mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, right? So one, we're wasting tons of resources to arrest people and say, look, we're saving everybody and we're actually just having people go through the horrific criminal justice system, which not only doesn't save anybody, but it actually like re-exploits and re-harms mm-hmm. people, right? So right now, you know, again, I know I, I brought this up earlier, but you know, NYPD Vice, they will go in and bust a massage parlor, you know, because that's where the majority, at least in New York City, the majority of prostitution arrests are occurring in Queens, in the borough of Queens, and the majority are of Asian women. Right. Mm. And so they'll go in and they'll say, We're here, and they will arrest, you know, dozens of women. And what does that do? That deeply harms the people they're arresting. No one is being right. saved. And in fact, they're all being 
incredibly hard. So my point in bringing that up is if we can like dismantle vice and just have a human trafficking unit and mm-hmm. actually have police just looking for exploitation, coercion, the traffickers, that'd be great. Yeah. Instead, we're running around, you know, busting massage parlors and harming sex workers, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So it would free up, you know, resources and refocus, right? Yeah. Police and law enforcement of where they need to be focused. Well, and it seems like, and I think this is true of a lot of quote-unquote nonviolent crimes, right? Those things that fall under the category of victimless crime mm-hmm. is that it creates a distraction for the police, right? Totally. They go after the nonviolent stuff, I imagine, because it's easier. Easy. To go after the nonviolent stuff. And now we have, you know, problems with, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we're oh, cool. ranked the highest in violence here. Huh. And our, our police department would rather focus on, you know, nonviolent offenses. Mm-hmm. Of course. Which, yeah, that seems completely counterproductive. Totally. Let's see. Oh, and I had one other piece to that as well. Oh, yeah, just go ahead. In that question of, so right, first and foremost, it could refocus, right? And this, the second piece is that sex workers want to end human trafficking and exploitation Mm. within their industry. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants exploitation, right? Like restaurant Mm -hmm. workers don't want their colleagues to be exploited. Nail salon workers, factory workers, nobody wants exploitation within their field. The problem is that, you know, sex workers are not going to go to the cops, right? Right. Clients are not going to go to the cops. If you're at working in a strip club, let's say, and you're, you know, a dancer you know, there for your own volition. And and all of a sudden you notice, hmm, some of these newer dancers look really young or mm. they don't speak the language and they seem a little confused about, you know, you're not going to run to the cops. Even though stripping itself is, right. you know, is legal, there's still a lot of stigma and, yeah. and all that. But, and also prostitution busts happen in strip clubs, right? So you don't necessarily want to invite police engagement. But if mm-hmm. this sort of like the vice aspect was removed... You know, people could go and say, you know, there's a guy that brings around a bunch of younger women now to the club and I, you know, someone needs to look into this. They seem potentially exploited. Not that I want to make everybody a renegade, you know, like... Right, right. But again, you know, that's where people get tips. People in the industry are seeing things with their own eyes. And if there's a horrific relationship with law enforcement, they're never going to go. Right. And the same with clients, you know. Mm -hmm. When I represented did representation of survivors of trafficking, I had more than one client tell me, and this is a very controversial statement when I talk to people on the prohibitionist side, but I had more than one client tell me that they were helped by a client of theirs. Wow. And I'm certainly not saying that clients are heroes. I, right. I'm agnostic about clients. I don't really... Cool, not whatever does matter to me, as long as you treat people well. Mm-hmm. But I had more than one. And I, I represented, you know, minors who were trafficked domestically. And I, I mean, I represented adults as well. But I remember specifically that a few of these incidences were of minors mm. who said, you know, I was being forced or I'm 15. Can you... And the client brought them to police station, but dropped them outside, right? Because mm-hmm. they don't want to be criminalized either. Right. And so I think that the Nordic model assumes that all clients are bad or the, you know, the devil. And that's just not the case. Yeah, And so again, if we're really looking, if our goal as a society is to diminish exploitation and violence and trafficking, why don't we all rally around that? 
right? Like, (laughs) why don't we make it the easiest for people to report things? It seems like, and I've certainly read news stories to this end, that even if you're just criminalizing the purchase of sex, there's not a whole lot of incentive for the police to not exploit sex workers in the name of getting the John, right? Completely. That happens with the war on drugs, right? Is drug users are exploited ostensibly in order to get the drug dealer. And I've seen stories. In fact, you guys mentioned one example on your website about how a police officer, I think he had been an officer for something like 14 years. He was in a position to actually traffic a girl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so they're insulated. The police are insulated from this. I've seen other reports where the police are given the power to go ahead and purchase sex themselves, follow through with the act, and then arrest. Oh, yeah. I don't see how that's not exploitative. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Yeah. So let's see. Here's another question. And this was from a woman who favors prohibition. She says... Mm -hmm. Prohibition, she believes, incentivizes women to take responsibility for their lives. Won't Hmm. decriminalization remove that incentive? Hmm. I saw that question on the outline and I thought it was such an interesting framing. Mm -hmm. Because I think to take responsibility, it can be interpreted... A number of ways. ...in so many ways, right? And I'm guessing that this particular person, and I'm not trying to shame this, but but, uh, but I think it gets to a larger thing about maybe libertarian thinking, perhaps. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think she's a libertarian. Oh, I think she's, yeah. Interesting. I, don't, I have plenty of conservatives that follow me as well. So I'm fairly okay. certain she would fall under the conservative category. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I know that that, I guess where I was going with that is sort of this idea that you got to sort of buck up and... Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Which yeah. is... And again, I don't want to mischaracterize or misclassify, you know, but I think that that is something that where I do rub up against with maybe some, you know, and I'm probably oversimplifying, but libertarian thinking is that, right, I see all the systemic inequities and, right, racism and classism and, you know, all this stuff, which is why, you know, most people can't do that. But so that's sort of what I sort of thought about when I saw that question. I think that engaging in sex work is taking responsibility. I think if, you know, for many, many people, women, especially trans women mm-hmm. who are not hired in mainstream vanilla jobs, right? I think doing sex work is maybe the definition of taking responsibility. It's like, well, I need to eat. I need to feed my family. I need to have a roof over my head. This is what I'm going to do. And so I would actually argue that, yeah, it is nothing but taking responsibility and saying, well, okay, I'm going to use what I have you yeah. know, to make sure I can make ends meet. And again, for trans women, queer youth, right, who are thrown... And, and I don't necessarily even mean, you know, someone who's a minor, let's say a young person, 19, 20 years old, you know, who maybe has faced family rejection and been discriminated against because they're queer, you know, this is a way to, you know, again, like be financially independent and take responsibility for, you know, again, that's, you know, whatever yeah, that phrase I hear you. Mean. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, you know, one of the criticisms from libertarianism has to do with the public education system. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder if this is really, you know, because I knew when I was in college and this was, 20 some years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was in college, I knew girls who would 
you know, get their income by becoming strippers and that paid for their college. And I, on the other hand, dropped out of college because I couldn't afford to pay for it and wasn't going to go be a stripper. But I wonder if there's some element of public education not actually preparing us in such a way that maybe we don't feel like sex work is the only option, right? Sure. So I, I wonder if that's, you know, when we talk about taking responsibility, there are many young people who graduate from school who are not prepared to actually live an adult life. Yes. And so... From a Christian libertarian perspective, if I were to try to dissuade a woman from choosing sex work, part of that conversation, I think, would be whether or not she has skills and talents in other areas other than sex, right? Mm -hmm. And where is she going to learn it from if she didn't learn it in school? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. So I think that's probably the Christian angle on it is Mm -hmm. if we're going to want to discourage sex work as a way to take responsibility and pay the bills, then there has to be another piece involved. She has to have some other marketable skill mm-hmm. that she would prefer to make money off of instead. And that's an education piece. I think also, and you know, we've sort of danced around the abuse mm-hmm. issue. That's a topic that is near and dear to my heart because I mm-hmm. divorced from an abusive marriage. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I learned from that, and I've mm-hmm said this a number of times, was that, you know, when I came out of that, I had to learn about red flags. I had to learn how to keep Mm -hmm. myself from getting trapped in that again. And one of the things that I realized was that abusive behavior is completely predictable patterns of behavior that Mm. can be identified. And I don't know why we aren't teaching our girls this. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this, and we're going to jump into stigma in a minute, but it seems like Mm -hmm. a lot of the stigma has to do with not educating yes. our young people on a variety of topics that are absolutely necessary. I mean, great. They've got some facts about U.S. history and right. you know whatever else, but can they actually form healthy relationships? Yeah. Can they actually pay the bills? Do they actually understand yeah. what their marketable skills are and that sort of thing? Those don't seem to be things that our young people are coming out with. No, I'm, I'm actually so glad that you brought up like teaching especially young women, right? But like teenagers, adolescents about healthy relationships and healthy dynamics. I just came back from the Woodhall Sexual Freedom Summit. They're a great organization. They put on a sexual freedom summit in the DC area every year. And we, myself and and two of my colleagues from Decriminalized Sex Work, we put on a panel talking about a law review that we got published Mm -hmm. last year exactly on this issue, on the need for comprehensive sexual health education to help diminish abuse and exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so this exact point, and actually we quoted in the paper, and I can send it to you. It might be on our website, but I I can certainly email it to you. We actually quote Elizabeth Smart, who, you know, obviously was kidnapped Yep. And then, of course, no one is saying education would have prevented her from being kidnapped. But what, what she right. did say was that her sex ed that she had had growing up had taught her that, you know, you're like a piece of gum. And if you're a woman, you have sex, you're like chewed, more and more chewed up. <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's so ridiculous. Yes. And so she, when she emerged from her, you know, horrific situation, she felt 
horrific about herself. She felt the shame. She felt like a used up piece of gum. And that then carried forward, right? And again, you know, her situation was horrific, but how she felt afterward was reinforced by what she had learned about the expectations, right? Gender Mm -hmm. expectations and healthy relationships. Yep. And so, yeah, I think it's immensely important for young people to, or or people, older people, you know, better late than never, um, to learn about healthy relationships. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I guess we'll go ahead and jump into the stigma section because that's a great segue. You know, the Christian community is starting to wake up to abuse within our own Mm -hmm. ranks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard, there was a major report from the Southern Baptist Convention that came out exposing there was a non-criminal investigation done into reports of sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's pretty damning. Wow. And there are movements now within the Christian community to try to actually address this issue. One of the things that they found is that something called purity culture, which I would argue is patently unchristian, but was sold as a Christian sexual ethic, during mostly the 90s to early 2010s, although it's starting to, I would say, have somewhat of a reinvigoration just as a reaction mm-hmm. to, to what we're seeing in the culture today, yeah. which is unfortunate. But there are a number of things that this purity culture, quote unquote, would teach women. And like you mentioned, this gum analogy, there's a sermon that's given by a pastor named Matt Chandler. And he's talking about how he's at this purity culture sort of youth group thing. And he says that his experience with that was, you know, you had another pastor and he was a youth at the time. He had another pastor who hands this kid a rose and he says, okay, pass this rose around to everybody. And of course, by the time everybody has handled it, it's wilted and everything's, Ugh. you know, the, the you know where I'm going with this. The, the, the petals are falling off and everything... And this pastor, not Matt Chandler, he was a youth at the time, but this pastor grabs this rose and he says, now who would want the rose? And it's supposed to be this big shocker to get Christian girls to, you know, straighten up and fly right. Yes. And Matt Chandler, his response to this was, Jesus wants the rose. Mm -hmm. That's what this is about. Yeah. Jesus wants the rose. So, yeah. There is this pushback happening against this. And one of the things that I've personally, like I'm putting these pieces together, right? And I mentioned, I would say that there's three, I said four in my notes, but I think it's Mm -hmm. three themes of stigma here. We have the state, Mm -hmm. which says women sometimes invite rape, Mm -hmm. right? It's the one violent crime. First of all, it's terribly Mm underreported because... By and large, it seems women don't feel that they're going to get justice for it. But it also seems like it's the only violent crime where judges will actually consider the possibility that the woman brought it on, that she invited it. And that's mind-blowing to me Mm -hmm. because that means that our no doesn't mean no. It Mm -hmm. sometimes means yes. Your website mentioned something about how sexual crimes against prostitutes will have this, this... acronym yep. or this moniker, no humans involved. Yes. Tell me, tell me about that. Explain that a little bit more. This was mind-blowing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if it is currently done by law enforcement. It may or may not be 
currently done, but certainly in the past, in certain jurisdictions, there would be a little NHI, no human involved, if there was a prostitute involved, especially, you know, sex workers have been the targets of serial killers time and again. Mm. And actually, when I was getting my master's in public health, one of my papers I wrote was specifically about serial killers and sex workers, which I know sounds so morbid. And I'm not necessarily like a crime, true crime (laughs) person, but it's, to me, it's not about the crime itself. It's why, why is this pattern occurring? This is a public health problem, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, Gary Ridgway in the Pacific Northwest, it almost always seemed to be in the Pacific Northwest, but... um, (laughs) You know, I mean, it's very gloomy. So uh, lack, of, lack of sunshine. Lack of sun. I mean, I'm heading to Vancouver in a week and I love Vancouver, but, you know, still. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he killed, you know, I, I don't want to misstate a number. I want to say over 80 women, at least. And, you know, this is a long line in history, right? I mean, we think of Jack the Ripper who targeted sex workers in Victorian mm-hmm. England. Sex workers have always been the targets. We still have an unsolved murder here in New York on Long Island, the Gilgo Beach murders, Mm -hmm. where, you know, I think over a dozen women at least were murdered, you know, by this sort of beach area on Long Island. So, you know, I forget why I'm going off on a a huge (laughs) engine about serial killers. Oh, but right. So the no human involved delineation Uh sort of matches the way that other people in society, especially men, right, see women. And so Gary Ridgway said at his trial or his sentencing, you know, I targeted prostitutes because I knew nobody would care. Nobody would look for Mm. them. And he was right. He got away with it for like 30 years, you know? Wow. (laughs) Right. And so the police delineation of no human involved, it it shows, right? Oh, well, this person is not really a person. They brought it on themselves, their lifestyle. Like they're not really worthy of, you know, being cared about. And I think that is finally shifting. I really Mm -hmm. do. But the lives of sex workers have throughout history, you know, been devalued, Mm -hmm. right? And the no human involved delineation is an obvious marker of that. Right. So, I mean, that was that was mind-blowing. I mean, I, I knew that prostitutes were especially not given a fair shake when it came to violence against them. But they're also, I wonder, and I don't know if there are studies on this, but I, I do have to wonder if sexual violence against women who are not prostitutes is somehow connected to this, this mentality that prostitutes don't deserve it, Right. And I, so I wonder if there's a connection there. So that was one theme of stigma that I saw was the state doesn't take sexual violence against women seriously. The second one was what we've already discussed a little bit, which is this radical feminist view that all women are victims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's patently false. Yes. And like I said before, steals agency yes. from women. And then you have this purity culture aspect, which again, I must insist is not mm-hmm. Christian. <laughs> even though it flew under that flag. Yeah. And there are these ideas even there, this idea, for example, single women are inherently temptresses, mm-hmm. right? And this is why we have to cover up and wear yeah. certain clothing that, you know, covers us from head to toe, forgetting for the moment that rape also happens in, you know, Middle Eastern countries where you're covered fully from head to toe. Totally. You know, so there's that. 
there's also this, this idea, which is actually still fairly prominent today, that married women are a kind of methadone for their husband's porn addiction. Mm-hmm. And that it's not permissible for a woman to say no to sex to her husband because he needs to fulfill this thing or else he's going to go off, you know, and seek out a... Pro- I'm like, that's absurd. Absolutely absurd. Yes. So one of the reasons why I'm saying this is for the benefit of our audience. Mm-hmm. Because I think there are some connections here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to point out, there's a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She made a mm-hmm. Facebook post just the other day, which was oh. really interesting. One of her comments, it has to do with the fact that, and I don't know if you know this, but for all of Christian history, women have made up a majority of Christians. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's always been huh. female-dominated, and it's only recently that's flipped. And so now women are a minority, a very slight minority, but a minority nonetheless. It's a significant shift. And I think Mm. we should be asking why. (laughs) I know that. But one of the things that she says, she's got a new book coming out and she did this study about masculinity and the way women treat men. Mm. And she said that there is an equal number of men who claim the Christian label to an equal number of men who actually are practicing, professing Christians. Hmm. And she says, of those who just claimed the label, she says, they often behave worse than secular men. And they have the highest rates of divorce and the highest rates of domestic violence. Hmm. And I think it's interesting to to bring this out because I have noticed just in my own experience I I can see that there are good Christian men out there. I can see that there are good secular men out there. But there is this group of men who claim to be Christian and they're Mm. absolutely horrid. (laughs) They treat women terribly. So I'm drawing this out mostly for the benefit of our audience because there's something to be said, I think, about the connection between the way society is treating women, the way that people who claim to be Christians are Mm -hmm. treating women, I don't think that this can be ignored. And I don't think it's as easy as saying, oh, well, we just need to make prostitution illegal. And there's a passage in scripture, Matthew 5, 37, that says, let your, you know, all all you need to say, this is talking about oaths, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And what I see from these bits of stigma whether it's from the state or Mm -hmm. feminism or purity culture and Christianity, is that a woman's yes is not allowed to be yes and a woman's Mm -hmm. no is not allowed to be no. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, if I'm reading this right, that Mm -hmm. seems to be pretty common in our culture. And I don't think it's something that we talk about. Right. So I see decriminalization of sex, even though I think that voluntary participation in it is a vice and immoral and those sorts of things. I see it as allowing a woman's yes to mean yes. And it also allows a woman's no to be no, right? When she doesn't want to be involved in it. I mean, this would require, this goes back to education, right? This would require talking to our kids about the realities of these things, which is, it's very easy to sort of shove it under the rug and pretend that it's not going to happen to me. Anyways, I wanted to throw all that out there. What yeah. what thoughts do you have? I'm sure you have many. Yeah, no, that's so also fascinating, right? Like mm-hmm. what came to mind actually as you were 
giving some examples was in this paper that we also featured in the law review around the need for sexual health education in diminishing trafficking and exploitation and abuse, especially of women, was a lot of examples of women who are trafficked from Mexico. And I saw this with my own clients as well, where what would be used to lure them was sort of this purity and and religion Mm. over them, right? And so they would say, they would maybe even rape, you know, a man would woo a woman and and this, you know, in Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe from a very small town where religion is, you know, really critical sort of centerpiece, right? To people's values. And, you know, he would maybe woo her with promises of marriage and a better life. And then maybe they would sleep together. And then the tables would turn, right? Or they would get married and then boom, I boom. have the tables turn, become abusive, say, well, you slept with me. You can't go back. You know, what would your parents say? Or we can't get a divorce. What would your parents say? The community would shun you. And of course, you know, these women would be young. I'm not necessarily saying minors, but, you know, 18, 19 years old, right? Not really having a worldly, you know, understanding of things. And and I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying they realize all of these things to trap and control and manipulate. And, you know, by the time, I mean, they realized obviously something was wrong, but it was, it was almost like they were in too deep because of the shame and stigma. Yeah. Right. You want to escape. You're like, this is terrible and abusive, but what would be worse is going back to my family who would say I'm a whore and throw me out, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was really, you know, very, very common, especially, you know, like Mexico, there were certain smaller cities or towns where traffickers would go, like that was the industry, was trafficking women and manipulating and utilizing these religious values Mm -hmm. for evil, really, right? Yeah, yeah. So... I'm not saying the answer is no religion, right? Um, right? But I think the answer, right, is heightened education and awareness and whatever someone's religion is, you know, or isn't, everyone having an understanding of their own value and their own worth mm-hmm. and knowing that if something doesn't feel right or if something feels hurtful or harmful, to question that and, yeah. and to know that there's support for them, yeah. right? Even if maybe your mom or dad or rabbi or pastor or somebody might not love what you might be engaging in, right? They're there to support you through, you know, what you might be going through. Well, and there is this, I keep going back to the education piece, but I think it's so, so important because especially in the conventional debate on abortion, right? It was all this battle between having sex education Mm -hmm. and having abstinence only education. Yes. And I remember reading a column from a sex columnist who said that, you know, she grew up in a conservative evangelical home, but because she was taught abstinence only, Hmm. she never learned what was wrong in sexual interactions. And she wasn't given a chance to really think through that because it was just Mm -hmm. kept from her. She was sheltered from it. On the other hand, with the way sex education is done now, I think it's sort of the opposite extreme. It's like, everything's okay. You can't say no to this or that or another. 
And it's like, okay, the missing piece of the puzzle is the no. Where do we get to say no? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. on top of it, you have this authoritarian culture that says if somebody has a title or if somebody is older than you, you have to submit to that. You don't get to, you know, saying no is disrespectful to your elders, blah, blah, blah. Yes. I think that's also harmful. It's just, you know, when you have this piece of, you don't know anything about sex or what is okay or not okay. And then you have the authoritarian piece that says you can't say no to an adult, then it should be no surprise that when a pastor or your friend's father or whatever comes over and he's making advances, you've been told to obey him and you also have no clue what he's doing. Mm -hmm. I think that's just as much grooming as the complaint that the everything goes is also grooming. And so... One of the reasons, Melissa, why I wanted to have this conversation was obviously over like just the justice aspect of the sex work. But I do believe that there's a connection between these false teachings that have gotten into the church and the way women are treated. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And I think, you know, I just am laughing about my own children's sexual health ed, which they're little. Mm-hmm. My younger one will be seven in a few weeks and my older son's eight and a half. And so they're little. They're not having like, you know, really... Extend, they're having age-appropriate sexual health education. They go to, you know, a lefty private school mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. you know? And it's very on brand with <laughs> your own community, right? And right. it's very much like all the parents, you know, almost all the parents probably hold most of the same values that I, you know, it's sure. very lefty. And so I'm just laughing because, you know, I think that people could point to my kid's school as like, well, this is what these, you know, crazy radicals are doing. You know, they have the comprehensive pride flag, you know, the inclusive pride flag. You know, they talk a lot about self-expression and their gender identity and, and racial identity and and bodily autonomy. Again, all in very age-appropriate ways, And all the kids are sort of exploring in a very safe, it's a very safe, supported environment. And, you know, a few of my son's friends were non-binary or came out as non-binary, you know, and my older son. And, you know, for me, my eight-year-old came to me and he said, you know, mom, I think I'm just a boy. Is that okay? (laughs) Yes. You got time to work on it. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, I'm kidding, obviously. I'm not, you know, we're not forcing our children to be trans or gay or, you know, although I was always hoping my little brother was gay and didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, we can go shopping together. He's like, no, no. (laughs) No, But it doesn't work out, right? It does not work. Like, like Mm. your kids are who they are. And what the reason I bring up their school is what is so nice is that they are given that space and that room to explore who they are, who they may not be, or what identities might feel comfortable to them, right? And it's an exploration, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and again, my eight-year-old, you know, being like, well, I I think I kind of just like being a boy. And I'm like, great, honey. Like, you do, you you know, sort of like all the options are on, Mm -hmm. on the table, which I know, you know, is very controversial in the in our political, you know, not maybe in Brooklyn, you know, or in the, you know, where I live in Brooklyn, but in in the United States as a whole, where we are with what I what I hear is an advocacy for school choice. <laughs> 
Totally. Well, you know, right. Yeah. I mean, they have to go to a private school, right? Which is right. the experience. Yeah. The idea being that you have these conversations among people you trust who share your values and, and okay. things of that nature. I don't think it should be coerced on right. either side. Right. But yeah, so... I think that the combination of the authoritarian piece, which can happen, you know, it happens at the state. The state does very much the same thing. They're very authoritarian, I would say. Mm-hmm. But any organization, any social group can also be authoritarian. And when you mix that with the inability to say no is a recipe for disaster. I want to talk a little bit about economics. I don't know how much economics training you have. I do not. Okay, that's <laughs> so okay. Imagine in the most minimal. Possible. That's okay. <laughs> well, I wanted to have this conversation after the stigma part of this mm-hmm. because one of the comments that I got on Twitter was from a sex worker, mm-hmm. and she asked she asked this question, which I think is very rhetorical and and aimed much more at the Christian community, at least at the idea that sex work should be prohibited. She says, why should it be illegal to sell something that I can give away for free? Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that the argument in favor of of prohibition of sex work is a moral argument. We don't want men or women going out there and having sex like it's, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's very immoral. And yet that's actually not criminal. It's the exchange of money that's criminal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something worth thinking about. You've got these terms like black market and demand and supply. Let me ask you this, because I don't want to monopolize the time (laughs) using an economic term. (laughs) What do you know about just the black market exchange of sex work beyond, you know, some of the problems that we've already discussed as far as, you know, the police is concerned and that sort of thing? Well. A couple of things. I think, you know, the comment about, you know, why should it be illegal to, you know, have payment for something we give out for free? I would actually take that a step further Mm. and say that, you know, we're not regulating, of course, one night stands, people, you know, buying someone a drink at a bar. And I'm certainly not proposing we do that ever. Um, And what I find interesting is, and this is backed up by public health data, is that sex workers have an incredibly high condom usage rate. Incredibly mm. high. And mm-hmm. if you talk to people in the sex industry, I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine who used to be an escort this weekend at the summit. She was like, oh, you always use a condom with a client. Whereas in, a, in your personal life, it's more murky because the boundaries are more murky, right? Mm. And so in your professional work, it's incredibly boundary, right? Mm. We are doing these things. It's for this amount and we are using protection and like, right? There's like Mm -hmm. almost internal regulations. Right, yeah. So to say. Whereas if you go to a bar and you're like, you know, I don't know, flirting people getting tipsy, you know, who's to say what's happening? And look, that should be left to the people that are involved, right? And, And we want it to be consensual and healthy and safe. So I, you know, I just wanted to, to touch on that. But in terms of, you know, sort of black market, what is interesting, and and we didn't, we sort of danced around this a little, but the vast majority of trafficking, at least that I have seen in terms of sex work, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I can't speak for 
factory trafficking into factory work or restaurant work or you know other forms of labor that are non-sexual before trafficking into prostitution people i think there is a misbelief or you know the erroneous belief that there are actually these like intricate webs of traffickers and mm. in fact it's usually intimate partner violence right mm. and it sort of goes back to what we're saying about need for sexual health education and and teaching people to look out for bad, you know, toxic interpersonal dynamics. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of people that I've represented, you know, was intimate partner violence, Mm -hmm. right? And and some of it was like, you know, one-on-one. Sometimes it'd be part of a larger maybe pattern or cultural sort of scheme, like in Mexico, for example, right? Where there were people were almost groomed to be these pimps and traffickers and then they would groom these women. Um, But even that would then mimic an intimate partner violence, right? Or Mm -hmm. actually be an intimate partner violence situation. Mm -hmm. And certainly for women that are minors that are trafficked domestically, it is pretty much almost always an intimate partner violence situation. So I just want to say when we're talking about sort of markets that... I think there's this belief that there is this like intricate dark web of human trafficking, you know, you know, organizations. And at least from what I have seen, that is not the case. Interesting. It's it's abuse that then becomes sort of economic control and manipulation. And, you know, again, for trans women, this is really significant, right? Because there, you know, is sort of so much rejection, especially trans women that might come from other countries where there's even less acceptance of them, right? Where they're coming here, looking for work, being denied employment, having, you know, maybe feeling unworthy, you know, they've had family rejection. And so if they have a partner that is like, well, you know, I'm attracted to you, I love you. And then they're like, okay, you need to go out and monetize this Hmm. or else... You know, and of course, it's more sort of like pro, I kind of condensed, you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, But that's generally what trafficking looks like. Interesting. And so it is more these sort of one on one, you know, situations. I'm not saying there aren't more established networks. Of course, there are, but that's not the predominant sort of way in which it works. It's often born, you know, born out of you know, again, just like a a terrible, horrific, abusive relationship where one person seeks to monetize the other, right? Well, and I mean, (laughs) one of the indicators of an abusive relationship is a lack of boundaries, which you've already explained that sex workers who have voluntarily entered into this have boundaries. They understand, you know, where to draw those lines. And again, I'm going to go back to the education piece. We don't teach, we don't teach our kids about boundaries. Um, (laughs) I do want to say one thing about, you know, I think one reason why the Nordic model is so attractive is because Mm -hmm. you hear this, oh, well, we're going to just criminalize the demand side of this, right? They use Mm -hmm. some, some economic terms. And I would be remiss being on the Libertarian Christian podcast to not bring up Austrian economic theory. So, you know, the idea of, supply and demand. First of all, it's a tool. We refer to it as a law of supply and demand, but that doesn't mean that it can actually be manipulated. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's something that we can observe, you know, a pattern that that we can observe, but it's a tool that is used to approach thinking about prices, not human behavior. Mm-hmm. 
And the mistake, I think, that people make when they hear, oh, let's criminalize the demand, is that this is something that you can manipulate human behavior with. And in every situation where we've tried to use supply and demand, I mean, this is true of of abortion as well, which tries to manipulate the supply, or at least the conventional debate has tried to manipulate the supply. When you try to manipulate the market for the goal of changing human behavior, there's always unintended consequences. It never works out the way you think Mm -hmm. it's going to, because it's not intended. Supply and demand isn't intended to do that. Mm -hmm. It's just a way for us to talk about prices, how are prices determined. And I think a lot of people don't know that. So I think that's why, like, when I hear you talk about all of the unintended consequences of the Nordic Mm -hmm. model, I'm like, this is economics 101. Mm -hmm. And we could predict this just because we know that we can't actually manipulate human behavior doing that, Mm -hmm. even though people try to use it. There's also a new... I don't know if you've heard the term neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. So neoliberalism has sort of posited itself as the the free market, sort of the new invention of free market economics and Austrian economics, which are classical liberals, would say absolutely not. Neoliberalism is not the same thing as, as free market economics. And part of the reason I think is because there's this behavioral element to it. There's another one called, or another theory called behavior economics, which I would mm. say is a distortion of what Austrians use, which is praxeology, the study of human action. Hmm. So on the Austrian side, it's looking for patterns and saying, oh, this is how this works, right? It's, It's a deductive reasoning. But this neoliberalism and the behavior economics is trying to twist that and say, oh, we can change human behavior and manipulate the actions that we want in the market by regulating things in in such and such pattern. And it never freaking works that way. Mm. (laughs) And so, you know, when I hear about the Nordic model, I'm instantly like, this isn't going to work. Yep. Even if it's well-intentioned, which I think it is. It's Mm -hmm. well-intentioned. No, you're correct. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work and, and creates more problems than, than it solves. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything else. <laughs> what else did we, I mean, is there anything else that you have that we didn't touch on? I think, you know, the, I guess the main thing, you know, I would love for your listeners to, you know, sort of consider or take away would be, you know, really at the end of the day, I think the commonality, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your political orientation is, no matter what you know your belief system is, that we want people to be healthy and safe, right? And we want people to be able to make decisions about their body, make decisions that are you know healthy for them. When it comes to sex and sexuality, we want people to have you know information, right? Mm-hmm. Have choice. Yeah. Be able to be safe, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that is a commonality that all people share. And of course, nobody wants trafficking or exploitation, right? right? And I think what happens, especially with between the sex work decrim side, my, you know, side, for mm-hmm. lack of a better way of phrasing it, and the prohibitionist feminist side is that you know, we're often accused of being the pimp lobby or supporting exploiters or, you know, it becomes very sensationalist. Yeah. And 
at the end of the day, we all have the same common goal. Yes, we have different goals around the legal structure, and I'm not diminishing the importance of that. It is important, incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But you know, to be, in my opinion, and I, I feel like you and I are are aligned on this, although I don't want to speak for you, but to be truly feminist, right, and and have you know empowerment for women is not to infantilize or yeah. assume, mm-hmm. right? Well, this is what I want. So all women should want that. <laughs> no. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that is an incredibly important sort of point that I know you brought up, you know, a few times and and, and that runs throughout sort of, you know, the decrim perspective is that it's, it's not a one size fits all. You can't say all women want this and all men want this or, Mm -hmm. you know, no woman would choose X, Y, Z. Well, that's, you know, that's very infantilizing, right? Right. And strips autonomy and independent thought away. So, you know, I think that would be like the main takeaway, right? Is Mm -hmm. is that to, you know, put yourself in somebody else's shoes and not just, well, this is what I want, you know, or this is what feels right to me. Well, certainly that might not feel right to somebody else. Well, and I would add, you know, for those that are much more conservative, that it doesn't make sense, especially if we want women to voluntarily choose not to enter the sex trade. It makes sense to respect her agency, right? She Mm -hmm. can't say no if she hasn't been taught to say no. Mm -hmm. And it also makes sense to teach her bodily autonomy and that mm-hmm. there, there are boundaries and she has a right to those boundaries. But I also think, and this is maybe something that didn't get drawn out a whole lot, but even for those Christians who really have a strong desire to help women out who have been trafficked, who want the help out, it seems to me that there's a potential under the criminalization model there's a potential for even Christians who are trying to help women out of this to get siphoned up into the criminal justice system as being quote-unquote third parties or whatever. I would be concerned that there's an element of that. Unlikely, I think. Okay. I mean, in the sense of if they're, you know, going in on a, you know, to a rescue mission, which I find problematic in, in other mm-hmm. ways, but not because they would be criminalized. Sure. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know everything that they are doing. and. But- I mean, even so, part of the reason why I don't know, I didn't find it in my research exactly what they're doing in order to rescue may have something to do with the criminalization aspect of it. Right. But, you know, it seems to me that women who want out need an easy way out. And we want that for them. Mm -hmm. And I do think that our society needs to have a respect for a woman's yes and a woman's no. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we have to endorse on a moral level what that yes entails or even what the no entails, but just that she has the right to say that. And we can use persuasion or or whatever else we want to discourage certain behaviors that we don't want. But there's no coercion involved in that. There's no use of police force involved in that. I think introducing violence into that equation by way of the state is a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. So even though you and I have some differences as to why it should be decriminalized. And I want to emphasize decriminalization is different from legalization. Mm -hmm. I think that we have some common ground and I think that we've really drawn that out. 
Definitely. in this discussion. So yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that we had the discussion. I'm really glad that I extended the time. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad. Yeah. So yeah, so thank you very much. We're going to have links to information from your website. Great. If somebody wants to reach out to you and ask you questions, how can they do that? Yes. You can email me directly at melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, at dswork.org. So melissa at... It's Decriminalized Sex Work. So dswork.org. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate the conversation and being able to draw all this stuff out. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 